The programme which follows is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. Hello, this is Matt Hale bringing you Art Monthly's talk show on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm joined in the studio today by Paul O'Kane, who's an artist, writer and lecturer, by Mark Harris, who's an artist living in London, and Ruben Fuchs, who's in Budapest on the telephone. Hello, Ruben. Uh, hello, hi, hi, Matt. Hello, Paul. Hello, Mark. Hello there. Hi. Yeah. Just so people get their voices. Mark, just say something else again. Nice, nice to see you again, Mark's Matt. got the deeper voice, with a really nice one. Now, this is a longer programme than we've done before, so we're going to be slightly more relaxed about it. Um, but we're basically talking about two features, one by Ruben <coughs> and Maya Fawkes. Fuchs, I should say, probably. Fawkes. Fawkes, thank you very much. And do correct me any time, by the way. Um, we've t- entitled it in the magazine Identity Crisis, um, subheaded on the return of the East European. N- now, Ruben... Um, Sorry, we're also going to be talking about Mark House's review of a show at the Barbican and Paul O'Kane's feature as well, which I'll fill in um, a bit more about. But basically, uh, Ruben, we'll start with starting with you. Um, when it, we, we call it identity crisis, where, where is the crisis? Is it to do with uh, I mean, artists who were in Eastern Europe, who no longer are, have gone back again? Or start me off by just saying where you think the crisis for them lies. Well, uh, the, I mean, the, uh, the predominant crisis at the moment, I think, is, uh, is obviously the, the austerity crisis and uh, kind of e- uh, economic uh, crisis of the last few years and how that has also impacted on artists uh, everywhere. But perhaps uh, we're looking particularly at how it's affected artists, artists in Eastern Europe. And uh, I suppose the overall idea or aim of the article is to raise the question that perhaps as a result of the, the crisis of the last few years, that uh, this idea of, of uh, East European and uh, uh, of East European art has uh, had uh, somewhat of a, uh, of a renaissance, so has, has returned a bit to uh, centre stage after a period in the, uh, in the 2000s uh, when, uh, you know, in, in, in the light of a kind of more, more optimistic uh, feelings about globalisation and the possibility of... Uh, of, of all, of, that we're all part of a of kind of ex- expanding uh, uh, open plane of uh, global possibility that uh, artists from Eastern Europe were able to, or believe they were able to, or perhaps were also able to uh, uh, take part in the uh, international art scene on an equal basis, just as artists, without having to make any particular reference to their East European roots or East European identity. So, uh, uh, in a way, the uh, identity has returned. So, you know, the, the subtitle you gave it of identity crisis is also, you know, maybe maybe is relevant in the sense that this idea of identity of East European identity, which was strong in the 90s, in the, in the 2000s, somehow w- w- was a bit on the back burner, and and uh, artists didn't refer to it in the same way. Has uh, has uh, seems to have been returning a little bit in the in the last few years as uh, as a consequence of the crisis. So, so basically, we're saying that the the artists and perhaps their work as well. We, we might, we'll go on to talk about some of some of the work and examples you use are, are reflecting what's going on in and around Europe. Anyway, so they're 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 
very much relating to their situation. Rather than being in a vacuum producing work, they're, they're reacting over the decades in different ways accordingly to the circumstances. Yeah. De- uh, de- definitely. So, uh, you know, we were looking at the, the, uh, just something that we've noticed in, uh, uh, recently that uh, while, whereas the society of Eastern Europe seemed, seemed somehow to be on the, on the decline previously, now, now it seems to be uh, more prominent. And on the one hand, that's about, uh, you can see that in, in the conditions that artists face, maybe uh, facing harder conditions also to, to travel and to take part in, in the international, uh, in international circuits to a certain extent, but also more generally in society uh, and uh, in, in a kind of a return of this trope or this myth of the, or, of the East European, uh, also in political discourse, in, in social discourse. And, uh, you know, what, what, what uh, brought this question to mind really was the whole... Uh, uh, debate over the the plan to have a kind of counter advertising campaign to discourage uh, potential immigrants from uh, Romania and uh, Bulgaria from coming to the UK after after this summer when they you know they would they would have the right to uh, to come and uh, work and settle in the UK under uh, European Union rules. So somehow this in a way almost a, a demonization of Eastern Europe. Uh, has, uh, has has come to the fore, and that that's a kind of another aspect of the sort of so- social aspect of uh, of the return of East Europeans. So on the one hand, it's about uh, changes in artists' works and the way they're reflecting on this change situation, uh, which is both economic and political. On the other hand, there's a there's, there's also in the, in the air there's this new. Uh, 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 pre- preoccupation with with this idea of the East European and almost also f- maybe even fe- fears of uh, of the East European of East European immigrants and so on. And we wanted to uh, reflect on that as well in the article. And artists have also been reflecting on that. Yeah, but you, you mentioned um, Adam Chodsko, who, who made a work. Well, maybe not the one you're thinking of right now, but he he did one which was of Romanian pickers, I believe, in Kent, probably. Um, and I mean that that's. At literally using the Romanians as as content, but I believe they were in it as well. Um, and e- editing another film, could you describe it a bit more to me? Would you mind? Sure, sure. That's it. So uh, Adam Chotsko's film, uh, The Pickers, in a way, um, uh, in a way, st- stole the idea or or uh, came up with this idea of an of an advertising film, a kind of counter advertising film, uh, way before uh, government planners, who in a much more interesting way, uh, with a much more interesting artistic twist. In that, uh, you know, he was he was looking at uh, a group of young Romanian uh, agricultural workers working in Kent on a on a strawberry farm, and uh, in in the film, the uh, uh, the uh, the workers, these uh, ag- agricultural workers, are are shown putting together, kind of editing uh, a film uh, using. Um, uh, archive footage of uh, people from East London who, I think, in the, in the 1940s and 50s had gone to, to Kent to pick uh, hops as a, as a kind of su- summer working break. And uh, in, a, in a way, it's all about contrasting the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the kind of lifestyle and, and, and working uh, habits that you can see in those films, which are, which in those archive films, which are very relaxed. You see children... Uh, eating ice creams all together and having a joke as all families all together and 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 it looks quite humorous and low tech and uh, somehow quite appealing with a kind of holiday atmosphere and that's contrasted with the shots of uh, 
these mo uh, modern-day uh, Romanian uh, guest, guest workers, if you like, working in the Kent strawberry industry, which is all in very, very high-tech greenhouses, and every, every movement that the, uh, the workers make is, is somehow uh, recorded, and uh, you know, they're not even allowed to stop to talk to the camera. They have to constantly keep working, picking strawberries, and they're paid by the number of strawberries they pick, and so on. So a very kind of harsh industrial uh, form of uh, agriculture. And in a way, the, so, so the, uh, the, the Romanian uh, uh, workers, they, 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 these, these young people suddenly come up with the idea, they have this kind of meditative moment, and they come up with the idea that what they're actually doing when they're editing this film is uh, uh, creating uh, an, an, ad, an advertisement, or kind of a publicity film or advertisement for uh, British workers in some kind of distant future. Uh, the British workers would then be uh, attracted to go and work in Romanian agriculture, in Romanian fields, where uh, the conditions were much more, still much more humane and uh, you know, more of a sense of community and closer to nature than in these high-tech uh, British farms. So really turning on its head the idea of uh, which direction people uh, want to be flowing, like from, from east to west or west to east, and uh, you know, the idea of where, where things are better, where, where is uh, the quality of life uh, better, in the high-tech west or in the more um, earthy atmosphere of uh, the Romanian uh, rural economy. Quite, quite a dilemma. I, I just For me, that there's a connection between what, what you wrote and, and also what Paul O'Kane has written in his feature, Life and Death, um, on art and being, which is in the same issue of Art Monthly that, that your feature's in, where, where he actually says, um, I mean, he's sitting next to me, so I could let him say it himself, really, but I, I'll just read a short bit. Um, he talks about um, Patrick Keeler um, and a film, a uh, piece of a film, I think, which was used um, from Robinson in Ruins, uh, which he called the Robinson Institute's installation. And, and basically, Paul is drawing out the fact that the progressive, there's a de progressive dehumanisation... And, and increasing mediation of our relationship with both nature and subsistence, which kind of connects with this idea of, of the way the picking now occurs in Kent, in the UK, that you're talking about. There's a, you know, the person is, is not allowed to have this kind of uh, happy family picking summer, uh, which would have happened with, with EastEnders, as you, as you described. But Paul, mm -hmm. would, would you like to come in a little bit? And, and we, we, I was thinking we could perhaps bring in Paul's feature as well, because... I, I, <laughs> It does seem to relate to me that you know his 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 subjects are, are, are slightly less uh, specific in terms of um, in a way. But well, yeah, I mean, I, I, this is Paul. I wasn't uh, hi, uh, Paul. hi hi. I wasn't uh, referring to uh, nationality uh, in my piece at all, which is what's fascinating about uh, 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 Robin's Rubens. Rubens Rubens piece. Sorry, um, but uh, yeah, there is a kind of overlap where I talked about this. Uh, this, Im this bleak image in Patrick Keeler, and also talked about a film called Ghosts by Nick Broomfield uh, that documented Chinese uh, uh, workers trying to uh, find a kind of fortune in, in Europe and ended up in, in totally dehumanised uh, conditions. Um, I just, uh, yeah, what struck me in the connection or, or the example that, that, that you were discussing was the, the idea of a, a kind of palimpsest that uh, in the image of the uh, Romanian workers making a film about the English workers, uh, the kind of almost like the kind of the currency or the, or the futuristic image of the of the of the of, of, of the current images, 
um, referring back to the past. There's a kind of sense of a strange mixed up palimpsest uh, where, where the Romanians are in Eng England. Uh, and that's what really fascinates me about uh, Rubin's, uh, your, your essay, Rubin, is the, is the kind of complexity of the idea of, of place and location and nationality today. Uh, and uh, although your essay uh, ends by kind of making an appeal to um, revisit socialism in some ways, to sort of try to uh, reevaluate the possibilities of international socialism or something, um, it strikes me just how incredibly complicated uh, this has become, especially in this, this idea of East Europe, which is now a post-Soviet East Europe. Um, that's what really fascinated me was was these uh, kind of complexities. If I can switch. It. Yeah, do, Ruben, do you want to say a little bit more about that, perhaps? Uh, sure. I mean, also uh, uh, about the um, uh, Paul's feature. So uh, obviously, I also wrote, when I read this quote, I thought uh, from from the Robinson in Ruins film, this idea of an empty field where. Uh, you know, and he rarely saw anyone working in the in the fields. And it, it does occur to me that perhaps people are not working in the fields because they're actually in the these like high tech greenhouses mm. working. That people aren't out in the fields anymore, but are, um, well, the, the weather the weather's so bad. People involved in in uh, uh, agriculture actually being out in the fields uh, now. The, the the other thing maybe maybe to mention in that regard is uh, uh, the the irony of of uh, uh, the fact that, that of, of, a, of a campaign, this idea of a campaign to discourage um, Romanians and Bulgarians of, uh, from coming to, to the UK, when at the same time you have uh, uh, Prince Charles, who who who, uh, who somehow uh, uh, appreciates the the value of that uh, Romanian agricultural scene and, and rural scene, and and bought a, a house in. Um, in, in a very remote village in uh, in Transylvania, which uh, by, by chance also visited that that village, and I can I can see how what, what he likes about this is really you know very very far from everywhere, and uh, there's a different pace of life and so on. And, and I think that, that anyway, there's a there's a parallel there, and uh, and, and an irony between uh, on the one hand people making this assumption mm -hmm. that uh, actually everyone wants to come over and work in uh, in uh, British industry, when uh, on the other hand you have uh, uh, a, a kind of a, a, a flow or a process in the in the other direction, with uh, mm. Prince Charles being <laughs> one example of that of, uh, of people appreciating and actually rediscovering uh, a different pace of agricultural life, uh, which is equally relevant to the UK as to Romania or anywhere else in uh, mm. uh, in Europe. R Ruben, it's Mark here. I had a question for you. Can you hear me? Sure. All right there. Yeah. Um, I, I, the the issue of nationalism. I, I would be interested to have some clarification from you. It seems that. In uh, relation to EU bailouts, um, countries, we've seen it most recently with Cyprus, have end up um, developing a, 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 a newly nationalist response, feeling that either through uh, an inherent um, capability they need to be more emphatically self-reliant. And so you have, you have, you have political national, right-wing political nationalisms rising up, but you also have, as we've seen in Italy too, uh, a sense that the country should be left to Italy and Spain, the country should be left to itself to sort itself out, Italy and Greece. And, uh, and some of the artists you've mentioned here, like Dan Pajowski, uh, Nedko Solikov, um, uh, 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 subtly pushing back at this. Uh, you give the example of Pajowski taking the cross out of the Union Jack uh, mm -hmm. as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a demonstration against this uh, 
prejudice coming from the UK against, against Romania. Um, but Solikov, uh, for his part, is reflecting um, on, on, the, on the possible forgotten benefits of socialism. And, and, I, and, 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 and so I wondered whether you had a, a perspective on, on, the, um, on the resurgence of, of, um, of different kinds of nationalism in response to these economic crises and how this was manifesting itself in, in, in art production. Yes, I, mean, I, th I think that they, c they can all be seen as uh, signs of a, of a weakening of this uh, pan-European vision, this uh, idea of, of European identity, or that we're all on a, uh, a path towards uh, a better European future, which perhaps was never that strong uh, in, in the UK, but uh, I think it was, uh, that vision was certainly very attractive uh, to people uh, in former Eastern Europe, in that... Uh, that in a way, the whole, the whole process of the transition uh, and, and the kind of economic sacrifices, social sacrifices that people made in uh, in the last 20, 20 in the last two decades was was was, uh, was just justified on the basis that uh, these were all steps towards uh, a, con a convergence in um, in, many, in many terms in terms of economics and uh, uh, living standards and so on with with the uh, with the West, as it turns out, with the with the with the old West or former West. And uh, in a way, it's a kind of di disillusionment with that process that, uh, that we can see at the moment. So there's, this, this, there's definitely a, a sign of a weakening of, of, uh, of, 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 of European vision, of this kind of positive European vision. And, it's, and, and as you pointed out, a, a resurgence of nationalism. And although we, we point to the example of, of kind of UK nationalism against Eastern Europe, it's, it's not just obviously not just limited uh, to the UK. We can also see it on the other side. So also, as you, as you pointed out with the... You know, rise of nationalist parties in in other countries, and even in the way the way people respond to the banking crisis in Cyprus and and Hungary, but also at, at a kind of European level, I think you can also see uh, a, a, a slight weakening of the commitment to democracy and some of the basic ideas of uh, of the European Union. That uh, uh, the basic underlying ideas, like the principle of free movement, and uh, with the Cyprus banking crisis, it seems even the Principle of a of the single market, kind of a, a free market, that also uh, seems to be endangered, or maybe even being abandoned. And they can introduce, uh, you know, t take ten percent out of people's bank accounts, right. or introduce uh, 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 capital controls and so on. Which yeah, I saw. I saw um, the whole concept of a free a free market. Yeah, I, I, I saw Solikov's um, uh, work at Documenta uh, uh -huh. last year, and and it, where he's wearing this. Um, bulky, cumbersome knight's costume mm -hmm. and going through these various rituals. That, that struck me as also having reverberations of, of, um, of, of um, uh, Europe, East European histories there. And, and mm -hmm. I, I wonder if you could clarify that. Was I misreading it to, th to think that this direct uh, I, direct? Uh, I mean, I think there def definitely are uh, uh, references to uh, to kind of mythic histories, uh, but I, I mean, I mean that work also, uh, the one in uh, documentary also also uh, you know, d dealt with his own uh, kind of personal childhood uh, dreams of, uh, if I remember rightly, of wanting to, to to play this role of being a knight. That's right. And, and yeah. then he manages to uh, uh, make that dream come true uh, by uh, doing different things like uh, taking part in a 
dressing up as a as a knight and being in a rock band or something like that. So I think mean, there's all kinds of insulation. I think it's quite personal at the same time as he's uh, right. maybe relating to uh, mythical figures of the night. Uh, it's also uh, quite quite a personal piece about his own um, childhood and uh, childhood uh, ambitions. Paul, you got a question, I think. Yeah, well, just a couple of points. That I mean, there was there were so many uh, fascinating kind of points emerging from Ruben's uh, piece. It's a shame you haven't got more time to deal with them. Or one, but one of the uh, two points I just wanted to to make. One, one was that uh, um, I was kind of interested in the way that in your piece, what uh, one of the strong things that emerges to me is the play between capitalism and nationality. That you know, w when you see the kind of thriving, booming capitalist years of globalization in which biennales thrive and people seem to escape for nationalization in a way um, you still get the feeling that then when the economy shrinks and you have these kind of increasingly reified nationalities and nationalisms emerging you still get the feeling that capitalism is in control and capitalism is going to uh, kind of play play the game whichever way it goes if you see it. I mean I was interested in that the, the fact that capitalism is always uh, in a way, is kind of uh, it doesn't seem to care whether we have nationalities or global uh, identities, as long as uh, capitalism kind of remains in control. That really interested me. Uh, and the other thing was that uh, throughout uh, your 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 essay, I made notes relating to sort of Deleuzean ideas of uh, deterritorialization and smooth spaces and things like that. And there was one example by an artist called Ondak who made a path through, uh, through I think, a Biennale show piece. And I just wondered what you thought about that idea of the artists uh, presenting a path, something that uh, kind of defines uh, a way rather than a place, uh, and wh what you thought about artists responding to a reified national nationalism with uh, strategies of deterritorialization. Thanks. So two, two uh, very, very, uh, very good uh, points. And very, uh, very, very interesting uh, uh, remarks that you just made about the piece. Thanks very much for for that. Uh, with, uh, uh, with regards to the kind of adaptability of uh, capitalism, uh, I, I think it's still uh, an open question. You know, whether whether I mean, obviously, capitalism is, is extremely adaptable. But I think there's also a little bit of a feeling at the moment that capitalism maybe isn't so much in, in, the, in the driving seat and that some, some of these things are go, a little bit going against the, uh, the, the logic of capitalism, uh, at least as we've uh, understood it, of uh, global mm. capitalism in, uh, in, uh, in recent in, uh, years or recent decades. It's frightening thought that something even more powerful than capitalism is emerging. <laughs> what would it be? <laughs> Ho would it be called hope? <laughs> it's East Europeanism. <laughs> yes, no, I, I hear what you're saying. But that, that would be on the, on the positive side. And, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure. A bit, but definitely there is a certain adaptability in capitalism. I mean, if you think of, uh, uh, I don't know, kind of like uh, rogue, rogue Russian P Putin capitalism, mm, that, that, mm. All, that also is, is very adaptable to, uh, mm. to nationalism as well. So, I mean, it, it definitely can uh, play both ways. Uh, but on the, on the other hand, uh, for example, in, in, in Hungary today, uh, the banks and the banks and capitalism seem to be doing quite badly because the government refuses to play by the uh, the capitalist rules. Maybe, maybe in the end, capitalism will get the the upper hand again, and they'll be forced to uh, uh, to conform. But uh, uh, or, or even the Cyprus uh, affair. It's also, it's also hard to judge how far these things are actually going 
following the interests of capitalism yeah. by some other forces. That's yeah, uh, a good response. Yeah. Are at work, but definitely the capitalism is certainly very adaptable, and uh, artists also reflect on that. The other, the other point that was very uh, interesting uh, about uh, uh, the kind of Deleuzian aspects of uh, Roman Ondak's uh, work. Uh, I mean that that, uh, that piece was indeed from uh, uh, Roman Ondak's uh, pavilion at. Uh, the uh, Ven Venice Biennial, mm -hmm. and uh, I mean, it was the the Slovak Pavilion, and uh, as as, as uh, we discussed in the uh, in the, in the article, uh, the Czech and Slovak Pavilion is actually quite unique in 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 terms of uh, Venice and the kind of post post communist history of the of the Venice Biennial. In in that uh, the, the the two countries, which used to be one, used to be Czechoslovakia, and now they're both independent countries, managed to find an arrangement to to share the pavilion. So uh, on, uh, usually they, they alternate. One year it's a Slovak artist, the other it's a Czech artist. I believe this this uh, this Venice they're going to have a, a group a joint show of one one Czech and one uh, 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 Slovak artist. Uh, and um, uh, but obviously at the same time they're very much uh, the fact of the pavilion and the fact that it's a shared kind of national pavilion uh, raises lots of uh, issues of uh, of nationality that uh, and national identity that Ondak. Uh, somehow, maybe in the spirit of this 2000s attempt to, of artists not, not to be tied down by their East European roots and identity and national identity and to operate on a global plane, and ecology and the environment is also a kind of a global mm -hmm. plane which escapes the, uh, the limits of the national. So in, in that, with, with that kind of intention, uh, he, cre he created a pavilion which uh, uh, reflected on the... Uh, the, uh, the natural environment around the building of the mm. pavilion. So he planted a lot of uh, uh, shrubs and plants and bushes inside the pavilion that were identical and somehow reflected the, uh, uh, the trees and shrubs and bushes uh, in, in the immediate surroundings of the Czech and Slovak. Uh, I, I was and there is indeed a path through the middle. So in a way, there, it, there definitely is mm. a, a feeling of, um, of uh, deterritorialization. Mm. Uh, of nationality and uh, uh, Ruben, I, it's Matt speaking. I, I went. I was actually lucky to go to that Biennale, and, and uh, it's the first one I've actually been to. And I went through that, and you, you, and he says something, doesn't he? Which I think you say in your in your feature. I can't spot it this second, but it's basically about when I mean, he's not really present in in, right, in his pavilion, yeah. which I I found. I mean, not only was there this breakdown of the national of nationalism or the, or, or the removal of it somehow, there was also the removal in a way of the artist, which I thought was equally interesting, because in a way. Somehow, or other that kind of perhaps I mean, this adherence to the the artist's ego and the artist's name and the artist, you know, individual always being forefronted. It, it, he kind of got rid of that as well because other artists have done things like I think Liam Gillick represented the was in the German Pavilion. That's right. The yeah. same year, and, and I mean, say for instance, I mean that you think would, would be doing what you're talking about, you know, breaking down the national, but actually it still somehow didn't seem to quite escape. Because it was Liam, you know, you were very forefronted Liam. This, and, and I find that that forefronting of the individual somehow has another has maybe something to do with the root of some of this nationalism. I, I'm making this up as I go along, but it's it's a feeling. <laughs> um, listen, we, we, it's been great to talk to you on the phone. Um, your bill must be increasing, or, or resonances. I'm not quite sure which round it is. We, we're going to go on and talk. Um, and you're welcome to stay on, of course, with us. But we're going to go on and talk a bit more. Uh, about Paul's piece, and then go on to um, Mark's review of the show at the Barbican, which involves Duchamp and various other people. Um, 
do cut off if you wish or or stay on well, as, as you like. I, I, could, I could stay on a, a little bit longer. Okay, well, you're welcome. So we'll kind of carry on. And if you want to cut in with a question any time, just okay. uh, I can't catch your I'll eyes. Just raise my hand. Yeah, I was going to say, because I can't catch your eyes. The one problem with having someone on the phone is we can catch your eye and I can point at them and put my thumbs up and things. I can't do it to you. Anyway, but but Paul, um, just let's go a little bit um, on with yours. I, I don't have a strikingly good question to suddenly cut in with, but, but you do talk about a lot of different artists within your your piece. Um, I mean, Pierre Huyg, John Gerard, John Raffman, Alfredo Jar. But, but you also mentioned, um, near the beginning, Walter Benjamin. Mm. What, what do you say about, about him? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm looking here that he, mechanical reduction alters human values, including the value of art. And your, your paragraph before that is, is it, I mean, it's quite depressing, to be really honest <laughs> with you. I mean, because you are saying, you know, things... Um, uh, basically about the loss of, in, uh, well, maybe it's a good thing, the loss of the individual, I mean, through through mechanic, mechanicalization of, of all processes. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think Walter Benjamin was, was a kind of uh, made a kind of dramatic uh, contribution to understanding of the value of art in the 20th century and recognised the centrality of mechanical reproduction and that that supplanted lots of established values that we have um, about the about the artwork, uh, in a way, p putting the machine in the driving seat uh, rather than the human. Uh, the human starts to take a take a kind of back seat, uh, I think, for Walter Benjamin, um, and uh, he's very sort of uh, prescient about seeing that, that that as being the kind of primary driving force for or the, or the primary question for art in the 20th century. And I suppose I've contextualised it as a I, I made a series of. Of examples of of, of dehumanizations, where the values and questions and differentiations of life and death uh, become kind of scrambled or, or, or obscure. Yeah, I mean, you talk about um, in the in the eighties and nineties, people like uh, Halley and Hal Foster um, were trying to respond to that kind of uh, question, and then you you go on to Hitto Steyerl. An mm. artist and writer, um, you say, perpetuating this legacy today. What, 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 tell me a bit more about about Hito. Well, only uh, yeah, Hito Styles uh, writing uh, one of the most sort of per pervasive and popular texts uh, in uh, in defence of the poor image is almost a sort of uh, a kind of updating of, of 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 Benjamin's argument to a digital age, uh, and her little collection that's come out recently. Uh, I think it's reviewed in Art Monthly this this time as well. Is the, the Wretched of the Screen. Um, by, it was reviewed by Maria Walsh, and uh, this collection is also um, Hito style. Is as I, as I say, kind of trying to do what Benjamin was doing in the twenties and thirties, uh, sort of uh, kind of riding the, the this very contemporary uh, question about the relationship between technology, human values, and art. Which, which I mean, but fundamentally, as practitioners, your your, your I mean your your last. Mm -hmm. um, uh, paragraph. I mean, is is about how, how you know what should we do to deal with all these? Uh, th these I mean, um, while I art, while art may be capable of championing humanity, of justifying a life and exploring the limits of what it is to be human, you say mm. that humanity, that life, and that being are continuously and increasingly challenged and changed, displaced, replaced. I mean, mm. I, I, I don't think that I'm suggesting uh, solutions or responses. No, you're questioning utilitarian responses. I'm just saying that uh, that uh, it's not just technology that, um, that 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 kind of challenges the established values of the human and what that means for art. But I also mentioned things like Haitian 
Voodoo uh, in a sort of a, a quick review of a show in Nottingham called Cafu, a uh, wonderful show of Haitian art. Um, the, the, not just technology uh, can open our eyes to uh, re-evaluations of the human, of life and death, but so does our kind of multicultural, pluralistic, relativist uh, perspective. So there's something like Haitian, uh, voodoo uh, kind of um, understandings of the relationship between life and death might shed some light on perhaps our technologized, uh, new technologized relation of life and death. Um, one of the so examples. I was, I was just wondering uh, if you uh, uh, see the answer to the problems of capitalism that we we're already talking about in some kind of a new spiritualism. If you talk about <laughs> voodoo and so on, and, and in a way compare. Uh, I, I uh, think. I, I think. Artists yeah. to, I, I, to, 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 to some to uh, to the mysticism of, uh, of spiritual. Society. Yeah, I think I was trying by by the breadth of of examples I gave. You know, Freud appears, and and, and sort of Deleuzean concepts appear, and the voodoo appears, and technology appears, and iPhones appear. The, but I, what I think what I was trying to do by by bringing a, a very great sort of breadth of examples to the idea is to yeah relativize in a way a kind of notion of of, of spirit or, or or a kind of uncertainty. I think I mentioned towards the conclusion that. Artists, even secular artists, have nevertheless been responsible for maintaining a kind of sense of unknowing, a kind of value of... Uh, uh, I also talk about post-structuralist philosophers, philosophers no longer offering philosophy as a consolation, but the, by the constantly troubling and creation of uncertainties. So in a way, the breadth of my examples are trying to, in a way, sustain... Uh, a sense of, well, you might call it spirituality, or you might call it uncertainty or mystery or something, um, mm -hmm. that, that, that arises you know, from big questions like life and death, but starts to cut across all these different uh, belief systems, which is surely the place we're in, in, in globalization. Uh, we have this almost kind of responsibility to relativize, uh, to sort of de-perspectivalize our, our positions. Uh, and, uh, and I think running through the text, there's a question about modernity. You know, kind of there's a kind of sense in which the modern person assumes themselves to have despiritualized, to have left the spirits behind. And I suppose what I'm trying to do over and over again is show that the spirits haven't been left behind. Even in the first image, with Patrick Keeler's abandoned uh, uh, agriculture, where there's no human beings in the, in the scene, even though it's harvest time, there's no human beings around. It's quite a bleak image, but. Even in that image of absence, you have a sense of a sort of spirit, the people who have been lost from the countryside, the people, the, the relationship between eating and, li and living uh, and, and gathering food and things is lost. But in, in the loss, there's a kind of spirit, uh, spirit, if you like, in the sense that we, we have a kind of affective response to that image. Or it, seemed, it seemed to me, Paul, a, a very interesting approach that, that you, you start off with these examples of, of, of quite... Um, negative, quite distressing uh, um, references rather to um, uh, um, Patrick Keeler's film, uh, to Ishiguro's novel, which you discuss at, at some point, Never Let Me Go, um, to um, uh, Benjamin, as we've mentioned. And then, in fact, at the end, you, you offer um, the possibility of some redemptive uh, solution here by looking at, at, at these Haitian sculptures, so interesting in Leah Gordon's film, mm. um, and, and, so I, so I, and you mentioned Maya Duran, of course, who did film in Haiti as well. Uh, so I wondered whether you you would say that in some of this in some of this work, which is not explicitly it's not explicitly technological, nor does it really address uh, this overwhelming um, 
entrancement we have to technology, it, it just seems to carry on working as if it wasn't there, where there's an alternative uh, to this predicament that we, that we face. An alternative to the predicament that we face. Um, Paul, how do you think? As I say, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I affirm those. I, I think that the, the, the in, in Leah Gordon's wonderful film about the, the sculptures of, 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 of Haiti, um, they're, they're emphatic kind of uh, um, conflation of life and death in their belief system, uh, in a way, is redemptive. I mean, they're kind of very enthusiastic about the positive uh, part that death plays in life. If you see what I mean, uh, the way that they think of the ancestors being with you uh, at all times, and uh, and the way that death seems to be outside your life, but in actual fact defines the meaning of your life. You know, a Western philosopher would agree with that as well, in in a certain sense. Um, and uh, there's something about uh, a kind of utilitarian, rational, modern logic that uh, that, as I say, as I say early on in the essay, seemed to push death into uh, a kind of uh, uh, an unacceptable place or something. And in all the examples I give, um, uh, life and death become conflated. Uh, in, some, in some cases it seems bleak, as in Ishiguru's novel Never Let Me Go, where the human beings r realize that they're not real, that they're clones and they can't reproduce. They, be they become like gen genetically modified crops or something. Um, there's, there, there's bleak examples, but, but you're right that Yes, so it maybe becomes a bit more affirmative. I find, I, find, <laughs> so I found when I was reading it, I was thinking also of um, Jane Bennett's recent writing on vibrant matter, uh, and, and some of the artists who seem to um, uh, draw new uh, or newly configured um, notions of, of another Deleuzian term, the assemblage, as a more a more encompassing, perhaps complex way of thinking of the mm. interconnectedness of things. Um, two American artists, Tom Holmes, particularly, who works with funerary matter, actually residues of bodies, and Joe Nigagosian, a sculptor, seem to have a to have a uh, a, re a relationship to in the, in their work to, to stuff to matter that's mm. that's not so far removed from what you're discussing in Haiti. So I, I'm 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 quite <coughs> positive about what I'm seeing out there in the world in 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 the sense of what some young artists are doing with, with material. Listen, th that's great, Mark. Thank, thank you for, that, for your point. I'm going to just slide us now on to discussing your review, um, which is um, The Bride and the Bachelors, Duchamp with Cage, Cunningham, Rauschenberg and Johns at the Barbican, which is on until the 9th of June, and I actually went and visited it yesterday evening, and I would highly recommend it anyone who's got access to London and the Barbican. It's a different experience going to Tate Modern, I was there, there was only five people in the whole place, which is absolutely marvellous. And he didn't shut till eight o'clock at night, and that was perfect as well. I like went, went after work. Say that again. A bit like Patrick Keeley's abandoned field. Yes, it was, it was. Abandoned galleries. No, but it was rather spiritual, it was rather good. But, um, I mean, you do actually, I, I, from what I understand at the end of your reviews, you like it, didn't you, Mark? I mean, I mean that's a, a rather light-hearted intro. Yeah, I, had, I, had, um, <laughs> I, I certainly had mixed feelings about it. I mean, this is work that's... Um, much of it 50 years old so we, so far today we've been talking about contemporary work yeah the, the now haven't we really and yeah this is something it's a long way go, a, a long, long way in the past and certainly the um what 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 interested the curators is, is Carlos Pasualdo who works at the Philadelphia Museum where the show originated and uh Philippe Perino the artist he brought in to develop some staging for the show that they call a mise-en-scene was was to try to figure out a way of bringing this back to life in the present what what could this mean for for um you know new new 
viewers of this work today. So it, it's it's an example of a new kind of staging of this work. We have a it's not a it's it's certainly up upstairs we have a traditional more or less traditional configuration of galleries, working galleries, and it follows thematic or chronological uh, um, forms. But downstairs, I think it's much more unconventional, especially if you're lucky enough to get there when there are dancers in the space on Thursday evening or sometimes at the weekends. Can you describe that? Because actually they weren't yeah. regret-free there when I went on yesterday on Monday. Well, so. there's a platform. There's a, there's a fairly large platform that is a little weird if there's nobody using it. It's just this empty platform in the middle of the, the, the great, the larger space downstairs. And, uh, and occasionally, as part of Pereno's contribution, uh, you hear the sounds, pre-recorded sounds of dancers uh, um, moving, footsteps of dancers stomping and moving about. These are recordings he made, I think, in New York from the, uh, what remains of Cunningham dancers because the troupe was disbanded a couple of years ago. Uh, so these are, these are Cunningham, Cunningham choreographies um, which, which will have been performed to um, uh, possibly Cage's compositions. Uh, so you hear the footsteps, but you don't see any dancers. So periodically they have uh, young British dancers who are, are re-performing these, these, these kind of compositions, which are uh, very beautiful. They're, they're a, uh, a different kind of dancers, the ones that Cunningham use. They're less, less physically um, Dramatic. impressive. <laughs> <laughs> they're not as big, uh, but they're very, they're very, uh, they're very good, and 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 it's uh, it's unusual to see that event in an exhibition. Yeah, because I, I I found the um, there's also pianos that have no one playing at them, but they play, and and I found that worked very well. I mean, I did find the sound element within the exhibition without the need for you know padded foam walls between rooms or anything like that. It blended beautifully, I yeah. thought, and I use the word rarely, yeah. it, with the exhibition. I did really find it a great accompaniment. As I walked around yeah. the balcony upstairs, it floated up. When I walked underneath, you had these speakers in the ceiling where Pereno's um, homage to 4 minutes 33 was to ha have live recorded street the sound. sound. In from the street from a water so cars fountain. went along the ceiling, it sounded like, yeah. but it really did fit. It wasn't intrusive. Yeah. I thought it really it was a great addition. I think it, I think it takes... It takes um, uh, it it uh, it takes a certain reverence away from the the exhibit, so you te you 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 can come to these exhibits with uh, with with contemporary eyes. I mean, you're hearing current sounds. You're you're re you're reconsidering these often very famous exhibits like uh, Duchamp's Fountain, the urinal, uh, the, the version of the bicycle wheel. There, I'd really uh, like to ask you about about that because you you say. Um, this is a show about art made under conditions of amicability and not antagonism. But Johns' right. remark about Duchamp's ready-mades, that you don't know what they are, and I would say he didn't either, but you say he was not concerned with knowing what they were. Do you mean Rauschenberg was not? No, Duchamp. No, I mean Johns this was is, not. Yeah. You mean Duchamp. Okay, because well, I was very interested, because you actually say we should reappraise, perhaps, the reverential nature in which we treat them. Well, inevitably, inevitably, even though even though there is a sound there, and you have a and, and some of that reverence is diffused by Perino's intelligent interventions. Uh, you, these pieces are on plinths. They're they're um, they're treated under under, under plexi. They're treated as special different, objects. Different, in a way, objects. to Rauschenberg. Some of Rauschenberg's work, which is in the show, isn't it? You know, say his his didn't he do a piece which is for Jasper Johns? Uh, the, the, Am the, I right? The boot, the, yeah, maybe, the, but the one the one that's uh, the one I mentioned is the. Um, is a homage to Cage. Which that, is that's a, what I meant. That's what a, I meant. A boot about to kick a piece of metal. But it's not. It's not so reverentially displayed as Duchamp, which is, no. you, you know you can imagine the insurance companies telling them to do it the way they do it. But yeah. but I, Ruben. No, we can't really hear your your lines breaking up. On the same line, 
No, listen, we can't hear Ruben. I think we have, have to fade uh, him out. He's trying to join in. Uh, I'm really sorry. Yeah. But we'll have to try and cajole. Well, the, the, question, the, question about, the question about the friendship is, is important because the show has been, uh, that also is different from how it's been done before. The show has been organised around, around the friendship between these five, well, four artists and one, and one choreographer, uh, or cage musician, um, who were very, very close. Yeah, uh, can, can we just, other. I'm going to stop you there. What do we mean by very, very close? What's the, I mean, well, they, in, they some cases, a... in some cases, Cage and Cunningham had a, uh, um, a uh, were, in, were in a relationship, personal relationship with each other, and also worked very closely to each other. So Cage was the, Cage was the composer for many of Cunningham's uh, dance projects. Rauschenberg and Johns had a relationship. Uh, in fact, um, also, I think, had a relationship uh, with um, Cy Twombly, who's not in the show. <laughs> so there was a... Uh, and not with Duchamp, uh, am I right? No one with Duchamp. Duchamp We're was, absolutely certain about Duchamp that, Duchamp was interested in women. Uh, so he, so there's <laughs> other strange things. Duchamp is, Duchamp is in this, um, this show with, with, uh, with four gay men. And, uh, and, and so the, I think the, the uh, original title, Dancing Around the Bride, had, could be taken as having... That's, that's, the, that's the, the, the name of the show at the bar. Yeah, well, we've... it's the name of the show in Philadelphia. It's been changed to ah, okay. The Bride and the Bachelors. Okay, I wonder why. But its original incarnation was Dancing Around the Bride, so whether we think of Duchamp as the bride or so on. So, yeah. But, but, of course, it, it refers to the... Explicitly to the large glass, which is in the exhibition. Yeah, one, yeah. one version of it is in the Yeah, exhibition. no, absolutely. I was very st struck by... That. Was it um, Rauschenberg remade... Uh, using the, the, the large glass... Oh, John's. Part, sorry, John's. Yeah. Made, and he, so he takes elements from it puts them in these plastic kind of containers hanging from the ceiling in the show, which were used as a set they were used as for Cunningham? They were used as dance props for a, a piece I think was called Walk Around Time. So the dancers would lift them up, move move them, move around them. Right. They were transparent because, as you, as you say rightly, they're paintings on plastic in, in frames, yeah. uh, quite large pieces, and, uh, and, and, and which retains the transparency of the large glass. Um, the uh, Duchamp gave permission for that did, at, a, um, at a dinner party. If I read in one of the captions, which I mean, they yeah. really were. I, I thought it was absolutely fascinating. With this exhibition, I came away realizing how close these people had known each other and worked and produced things, be, kind of because of that relationship. Would you agree with yeah, that? And, and, I, and, and I think it's worth remembering that Duchamp was very uh, pleased. He was delighted with this um, interest shown to him by these young artists. Uh, at a time when he wasn't really his his reputation was was somewhat, quiet somewhat, quiet <laughs> quiet but in the ascendant it certainly helped him recover a position that he had had uh, in the but you can the see his effect century. can't you and you can actually see yeah. pretty clear um, yeah. le learning as yeah. it gone on and and, 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 it, and it interested me in, in relation to Paul's article where he talks about Baudrillard's symbolic exchange and death that that the um, this notion of symbolic the symbolic exchange as a, as, a, as as an expenditure without an expenditure without um, without profit, if you like, mm -hmm. uh, is is happening here in this exhibition. You see it because these artists are making work for each other. They're exchanging work. Uh, they're they're producing pieces in response to each other's work. Uh, so it's not just a friendship. It's an it's an active engagement with each other's practices. It's, it's interesting. I, I've known that going on in the early days of of, of Philip Pereno, Pierre Huig. Liam Gillick, these people. I remember th th there was a time when I felt that there was that was a lot of that was going on between them, and I find it, it is a very positive note to to take. I think out of this show is that, yeah. is that and it is it is a, a, a counter to capitalism. I, I think because people are talking, 
it's it's personal, yeah. but it also produces things which can be shared outside of that relationship. Yeah. I feel not much. Not much of the work in the exhibition mm. had a huge value in the 1950s. It was no. It was it was being it was being made out of curiosity and out of mutual affection, out of out of partnerships. Yes, these were, these were genuine, yeah. genuine. But very important. I think that's very important. Personally, I was going to say that you could sort of try to draw a circle back to the start of the, the discussion with with Ruben's piece in a way because where you start to talk about collaboration as a site of sort of de-sub- de-subject- de-subjectifying practices or something. In a way, you work your way around to the questions of, uh, of nationality being reified and you know, what's, what's the answer to that kind of reactionary reification of the, the subject of the nation, uh, which is a sort of defensive retrenchment uh, opposed to, as you suggested, a kind of generous collaborative atmosphere that the uh, the European Union was was you know aspires to yeah it does and sadly to. seems to have uh, be dissipating before it, our eyes into retrenchment yeah I mean I mean uh, these these artists in New York I mean they came from many different places as well didn't they I mean they were of different nationalities in their origin whether it be their family or mm, specifically right. Duchamp coming from France I mean all, yeah. so you are talking about actually a very broad oh, I mean, mixed uh, nation situation in New York at that time anyway I was go- I was going to try mapping my own essay there as well in, in, in the fact that, that in, in my own essay where I kept where I keep trying to sort of uh, blur this distinction between life and death and produce this like sort of mysterious space between uh, between them uh, it seems to me that that's uh, that is a space that has been tri- people have tried to cultivate artists and philosophers have tried to cultivate it for a long time uh, like Derrida's idea of liminality or something um, the space of uncertainty becomes a sort of a generous space an unclaimed or deterritorialized space that maybe applies across these three yeah. articles yeah. Yeah. well I think on that optimistic linking note, unless Mark's got a really burning need to say something fairly quickly we're going to have to wind the programme up, it's slightly less than an hour, we've actually been recording talking, just general technical reasons for that but it's our first long programme so I'm hopefully, looking. I am looking forward to another long one in the future, it's worked okay, these great guys have talked interestingly, I've certainly learnt something and um, I hope you have enjoyed it too listeners, and um, do not forget that if you're interested in subscribing to Art Monthly we have a new direct debit special offer £29 for 10 issues, saving you £19 on the cover price. And we also, you get a free digital subscription with a huge archive. You can research all these writers' writings, plus many more, on the tap of a keyboard. Speak to you again in the future. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Mark Harris in the studio, Paul O'Kane in the studio, and Ruben Fuchs on the phone. I'm afraid we lost Ruben because of technical phone. His phone was cracking up so much it wasn't worth having him on. Thanks ever so much. Goodbye. This is Resonance. This program was brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. Visit our website at resonancefm.com to hear our vast range of original 24-7 broadcasts. Resonance is a not-for-profit broadcast platform and relies on public support. If you like what you've heard, make a secure donation at resonancefm.com.